Hello, and welcome to another episode of Desert Rain Community Radio. Thank you for uh, tuning in. This is our, our ninth episode that we're getting into, and today we'll be talking about Richard Rohr and his uh, living school and his impact on David Morrison and the trajectory of uh, Desert Rain as a community, as a, a spiritual um, center, and as a just sort of a way of life. So before we jump in, once again, thank you, Diego, at Recording Moving Studio. He uh, does all the editing. would like to also tip the hat to Star City Studio. Um, those drums you hear in the background, that's Monk Drums. Uh, thank you, Jacob, for those. And uh, if you want to read more of David's thoughts about community living, spirituality, prayer, anything of that nature, uh, theruin.com is a place to go. If you're enjoying what you hear, please share it with a friend, uh, rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Podcasts, or in Spotify. Uh, it helps us get the word out. So, uh, yep, let's get into it. Good evening, and welcome to another amazing edition of Desert Rain Community Radio. Hello. I'm here with David Morrison. How are you doing, sir? Not too bad. Feeling good today? Yeah, yeah, a little off, but, you know, doing yeah. all right. Yeah, all things, it's 2020. <laughs> You're like, that was a rhetorical question. I didn't want a real answer. No, I'm, I'm right there with you. I was about an hour and a half ago, I was like, yeah, maybe we won't record tonight. Sometimes you feel sluggish. <laughs> That's that's where I'm at today. But we're here. I'm energized once the once the mics go on, once these little blue lights go on, get hyped. Uh, so one of the things, so we've the the last several episodes of Desert Rain Community Radio, we've touched on um, we touched on your history, we touched on Desert Rain history, and then we kind of dove into uh, some of these um, ideas and themes and principles that have built uh, Desert Rain theologically, uh, emotionally, spiritually, sort of these guiding principles. And tonight I wanted to start, sort of shift the series um, in the sense of who are some of these Summa, the individuals that have inspired you um, throughout the years. And maybe we can start off by um, listing a handful of, of some of those people and then sort of uh, go from there. Yeah, for sure. Early on, uh, it'd be from the Quaker camp would be John Wimber, mm. which later became the vineyard movement of, of which we're still associated. And is that, did you come in contact with John Wimber or his thought process, his theologies through Quakerism or through vineyard? No, through vineyard. Okay. Yeah. Vineyard Quaker came later, uh, and I was a teenager at the time. And then uh, shortly after that, I became a avid reader of Richard Foster. Okay, another yeah. I've read some of his stuff yeah, as well. Um, Celebration of Discipline is a classic. Great book, <clears throat> and it's, that's been a textbook for me for my whole life. And, uh-huh. and how, then, old, how old were you when you came across that book? Probably seventeen. Oh, okay, 18. so you've been in it for yeah, it's an important book. Okay. Uh, and then, and then later in life, probably in my forties, I came across Parker Palmer, okay. who is a Quaker. Yeah, I've read as well one or two of his books and listened to a handful of interviews. Yeah, very, very insightful. Yeah. Uh, then uh, uh, Henry Nowen's writings, okay. a Catholic priest, uh, very, very touched me very deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Thomas Keating, who taught uh, centering prayer. Which we talked about yeah, in one of yeah. the earlier episodes. Last time, I think. Um, yeah, it was. Yeah, and then uh, and then of course Richard Rohr, a Franciscan priest, just up the road from here in Albuquerque. It's probably been probably the most influential voice mm. teacher in my life in the last ten years. And how did you first come across uh, Richard Rohr's teachings or theology? Uh, it was one of those things. We had a, we were hosting a group of spring breakers from Stanford University, and they were doing an, a project here, a building project, how to make sustainable 
um, living for people. They were doing it here at Desert Rain or right. just in the area? Yeah, here at Desert Rain. Okay. They were staying here and we were hosting them. And and the professor who was hosting them uh, from Las Cruces, uh, Robert Marquez is his name. He's a professor of... He's a clay chemist. I never, yeah. I didn't even, had never even heard of something like that. Yeah, and he's an Apache Indian as well, and and just a profound thinker mm-hmm. and uh, just a great all around human being. And so we were obviously talking after you know the day's work, and we would have some beers, and and then like the second day over, he he showed up in the morning and handed me a CD. And he said, uh, "This this teacher would be right up your alley. This this person mm-hmm. would speak exactly to what what you guys are doing here." And it was a uh, it was a talk that Richard Rohr gave, and the title was "The Authority of Those Who Have Suffered," mm. and it changed my life. And it was a a homily. No, he was a guest speaker at a hospice conference in Albuquerque. Okay, and this must have been somewhere around two thousand six, mm-hmm. something like that. And I was just blown away by that. And really, I've read uh, most of his books. I've met him personally. I've gone to, went through his living school, uh, many conferences and audios and all that. Mm-hmm. But that original talk still, I think, is his best. Is what? Yeah, it just encapsulates his, the man's thought uh-huh. and influence uh, in a very passionate way. And so before before we deep dive into to Richard Rohr, because I think that's what we're going to go ahead and do tonight, uh, maybe you could give some context for the for any of the listeners that aren't familiar with who he is, sort of his background. Yeah. Um, and I can I know a couple of things, so I can chime in as we go. Yeah, he's you know I mean he's kind of a rock star now. In yeah, 2006, no, twenty twenty is definitely yeah, and, and what been a, in rock star. And, and what was influential for me was the fact that he was just a Franciscan priest in Albuquerque right up the road from us. So I felt like he was, you know, he's one of us, mm-hmm. a Southwestern uh, nobody like us. And uh, since then, yeah, he's been on Oprah and Google. And I, I actually got to tease him about that. When I'm told, I know you're a rock star now and, you know, uh, so I don't want your autograph. Uh, but my friend does. We signed this book. Uh, <laughs> And, and, then, and then you framed it and put it over your bed. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I've been able to see how he's responded to this as well. Uh, you know, I went to his conferences when he wasn't that well known. Mm-hmm. And now I see him, you know, where he's he's very well known. And, mm-hmm. uh, and he, you know, drives away in a beat up car <laughs> to his little house with his dog or at the, his dog that he had at the time. And uh, so he's still very, it hasn't affected him. In fact, when he's at the top of his fame, he re, he officially retired mm. from teaching full time, mm-hmm. uh, traveling mostly, and and so, so yeah. So he's a Franciscan priest. He, so what, what's the difference between a Franciscan priest and a Franciscan monk? Uh, I don't know if you know, but a priest has taken can, can basically in the Catholic Church a priest can say mass okay. and have sacramental duties, whereas a brother doesn't okay. have those those kinds of uh, authorities and mm-hmm. privileges or whatever. <laughs> right. God hasn't authorized yeah. the monks. <laughs> but he was born in the 40s, so he's in his mid-70s. Um, he, he was raised in Kansas, of all places, yeah, and that's Midwestern where he guy. became a priest. And, and he was uh, involved in a charismatic Catholic community of young people in the mm-hmm. 70s called the, I think they were called the New Jerusalem uh, community. I could be wrong on that. Uh, the Wikipedia page would tell you more. Yeah, we, if you want to deep dive into his his background. <laughs> yeah, and then in 1986 or 85, he he uh, felt called to come to Albuquerque, and he started this place called the Center for Action and Contemplation. And which so, is which is an amazing, yeah, it's amazing just a place. Little, little place, and it's grown quite big recently. But when we first visited, it was just a simple, simple little place, you know, and had a labyrinth in the back and. And that's actually what inspired the labyrinth here, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 We we touched on that. In, in yeah. We basically episodes. knocked on the door. Hey, is Richard home? <laughs> we see. And they, were, and they were like, "Well, he doesn't live here. This is an office." <laughs> but they were very friendly to us and took cool. us on a little tour and the whole thing. So. So, uh, sort of going going back to your first uh, encounter through that CD uh, that was gifted to you. 
Uh, what was the evolution from there as far as you, – you said earlier you ended up going through the living school with Richard Rohr. So how, how do you get from hearing a CD that a, a stranger for all intents and purposes handed you? Right. A stranger who became a, you know, a friend. Yeah, I'm a great and, admirer of his. Right. Handed you this and, and started you on the path to – to a school that didn't even exist at that time. No. When you when the CD was was handed over, yeah, uh, it just you know it's kind of organic, and that's the way these things happen, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when we covered John Wimber, it was I found a cassette tape on the street, oh, and wow. that's how I found John Wimber, or how John Wimber found me, so to speak. And that was was that prior to you being involved with Vineyard? Yes. Okay. Yes. So, Interesting. Yeah. So, so that just, sort of started the trajectory these down the go, venue, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one one person's trash is another person's treasure, you know. Yeah. And so, life's, so yeah. So I, I think I think a lot. Of, if 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 we really uh, investigated our lives, some of the most profound things uh, happen so haphazardly that way. Uh, and so yeah. So within months, in fact, with Robert Modkis, uh we went to a, a little pilgrimage conference uh, and in, that's a, in that's Albuquerque. That's the clay chemist. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, within, I think, later that summer. Uh-huh. Maybe maybe fall. I don't remember the, the timeline. Right, but right, right. very soon after that. And and it was a conference um, called The Inner Room. And Thomas Keating was hosting it with, with Richard Rohr in, in wow. Albuquerque. And, and it was on the 12 steps, 12 steps spirituality and... And how contemplation fits that, and mm-hmm. it was just a it was just a mind blowing. Was it like a a weekend conference or a day conference? Yeah, or? it was like a Thursday to Sunday kind yeah. of deal, and and so I just became a a conference guru, not a conference guru, a groupie, a, <laughs> a conference groupie. After that, well, now you're a conference guru, but back yeah. then you were just a groupie. Now I'm not interested in conferences so much anymore, but. Uh, yeah, it's easy to avoid them in 2020. Yeah, especially like, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think COVID has cured that. us all of concerts. <laughs> Where is it? It's indoors. <laughs> I'm not going. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, so that was that was a great beginning experience. And and I might also add, it put so many pieces of the puzzle that I was trying to put together mm-hmm. intellectually. I was trying. I had been reading for a good five years uh, a lot of Thomas Merton. Okay. I didn't understand what the hell he was saying, just right. on the intellectual basis. Yeah, he's he's uh, I just his writings are up there. Yeah, so I would read it and I would say, "This is really amazing." I don't know why it's amazing, mm-hmm. but somehow this is transforming my life. But I can't even say how. And so, so when uh, these two, in particular, Richard Rohr and Thomas Keating, when I began to read their material and listen to their audio uh, lectures and things like that. Uh, it, it pieced together so much of the mm. Thomas Merton's writings and a lot of mystics I had read in my youth. And it was just a time of great, it was like a plug-in almost. And, and right. the Christmas lights came on, you know. And, you found the uh, one broken light on the street. Yeah, and yeah. And it was a Chevy Chase moment. <laughs> <laughs> You're running in, around the conference. In, in my national lampoon <laughs> spirituality. <laughs> Beautiful. So that that conference, so what were some of the early readings you know, you said you've read almost all of his books, but what were some of the early ones that stuck out to you um, beyond, you know, once yeah. you're past this conference and sort of delving in? Well, in, in my humble opinion, and I'm more of an audio learner, yeah, uh, even though I have a, a degree in literature, uh, I'm more of an audio learner, I don't, you know, so yeah, I don't know. I'm right and so, right and I feel that Richard Rohr is is more gifted at speaking, public speaking, than anything else. So I think he's he was made for the YouTube uh times, you know. Yeah, I I agree with that and and because I I don't I I think I've read two of his books and have started more than that. But his his podcast and it might uh, it might have changed um but they just posted his homilies. Yeah. So it would be like 10 to 20 minute snippets and what he could fit into that Short amount of time. Yeah, it's amazing. Is unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. So it's I would tend same, to agree with with your 
like this is this time was made if you know if he came along a hundred years ago he might not be yeah. as, as influential as he is and it, and it really speaks to the gospel which means good news mm. and it's meant to be proclaimed it's meant to be preached uh, that's what basically Jesus's ministry is mm-hmm. you know it's healing yeah Jesus wasn't going around teaching. writing books no he's healing and, and what was the second thing you said healing and, and preaching yeah healing and proclaiming telling stories. Uh, about the kingdom of God, and and so yeah, so I think it's 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 a perfect thing. So he's a proclaimer of the gospel. I mean, I could recommend any of his books. I think the first one I read was Everything Belongs. I think, mm. but but again, it wasn't it wasn't it's not so much his writing as much as his his speaking, in my opinion, his and, message. So and, what, what, beyond the the CD, so maybe we can go down that yeah. route. What 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 are some of the things you've heard him? I mean, I don't know if they're YouTube videos or podcasts or audio books. Yeah, interviews and those interviews. kinds of things. His homilies. That yeah. are, I know um, the one the one interview that has stuck out or stuck out to me, and it might have been when I first heard about him. One of the early introducers to him to me was you, but even before that, I might have heard an on being interview mm-hmm. with Krista Tippett. Yeah, um, that really really struck home, and and like you said, put a lot of. Yeah. A lot of pieces together. So I don't know if you have any specific examples well, like that. I would agree with his own assessment of himself, which is he feels, he hopes that his gifting that the Spirit has given him is that when he speaks and teaches or writes, that it really just ignites the, the hearer's or the reader's own inner authority. Mm. And that's really what it did for me, what his teaching has done for me. It just... Things that I had speculated inwardly but didn't have words for, he articulated in, in very simplistic terms. Uh, not totally simplistic, but, you know. Things that connected for you. Yeah, yeah immediately. The, not so much simpl- immediate connection. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, simple things like he'll often say uh, in the Gospels. So this was a major shift for me. Uh, as as a evangelical pastor, the the emphasis is on having answers. Jesus is the mm. answer. The Bible has all the answers uh, for your life, so you're living this world of answers, uh, and we pretend that they work, uh, kind of like golfers pretending that they enjoy it. Because uh, I just can't see how they enjoy that. But um, and and so I kind of lost my train of thought. <laughs> Well, you're talking about his his um, explaining of things. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The simply... yeah, yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. Um, you're good, man. Yeah, and so he gave me permission to live in the questions, and he would, and he would, he gives a very good example of that. Yeah, and the example he would say was Jesus was asked 180 something questions throughout the four gospels, and he only answers three of them directly. And even even one and even of those three, they're not super direct. And so, <laughs> as direct as Jesus. So we claim gets. to follow this Jesus uh, as with with all the answers to life and its difficulties. When Jesus doesn't really answer questions, and uh, even though he's the one that said, "Let your yes be yes and your no be no," and so so he re- so he gave me. But prom- I feel like that's more about honesty. Yeah, yeah. Than, than or Jesus a being a trickster too. God, yeah, God is his a coyote, trickster. His coyote, coming yeah. Out. But, uh, yeah, so it gave me permission to inwardly uh, go full steam ahead and, and be uh, comfortable living in the questions of faith, the questions of life, and, and not uh, living in certainty or a pretend, uh, a pretend certainty like most uh, religious people do. Well, and that's kind of how you came up, though, right? Yeah, anybody in any institutional religion, it's all about answers and and. Uh, conditional love, and it's all about uh, the rules as laid out and and living in these certitudes. Yeah, for sure, and platitudes. So, having that that sort of uh, that that background, that foundation, if you will, of certainty. Realizing it sounds like realizing that that was kind of not true, not real. Yeah, and I had felt that to be true, but just didn't have the words to. Right, and then feel you confident en- in that. And then you encountered Richard Rohr that put words to it. Right. How did that then propel you? Like, what are some of the things that changed for you after you got that? That sort of that green light to yeah. be, be to, okay, be uncertain. 
Yeah, so then you can allow others to be uncertain in their lives, and you can sit with them in that tension, in that uh, in their uncertainty, and you can have a real pastoral love that can come there and, and actually heal someone rather than uh, telling someone a platitude kind of answer. Well, now, now, you know, God has got a, a plan for you, you know, uh, even though their, their mother just died or their child just died, you know. But instead, you participate in, in the sufferings of the world rather than having an answer for them. Or as our friend Cole says, as it says in the Bible, waste not, want not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> just making up sayings. Yeah, you make you up go. these Americanisms and call it Bible verses and that kind of thing. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's one example. Uh, so to actually, to go down that example maybe a step further, how did that... I imagine one of two things happened. Some of the people that you pastored to before maybe got uncomfortable with this newfound uncertainty. Oh, and yeah, I imagine yeah, yeah. it also attracted some people. Yeah, there's an immediate shift. It's like a landslide shift. Could you do you happens. have any examples of of something like that? Yeah, we would have scores of people coming out uh, for pastoral counseling, if you will, right. from, from Marsha and I. And, uh, and we would ask them uh, to be comfortable in their uncertainty. And, and some, for a moment, would feel a peace about that. And then as we could see, as soon as they drove, <laughs> drove on back onto the highway, they were like, well, I was a crazy old man. They sped and, uh, up yeah, as they hit the and, highway. Yeah, we we're going to go to a place with answers. <laughs> Whereas others just end up, yes, I feel empowered by that. And so, so it just depends on where you're at in life. Uh, when I took it to the prison, it didn't go so well, you know. Interesting. Uh, but uh, with, but with to the, the minority, it did, you know. The people, when you say you went to prison, the other people that were going in the prison with you, it, it fell short on? Or with the yeah, actual both. people that were incarcerated? <laughs> both. I was the oddball on the team, you know. And, uh, and so the few oddballs would be very much empowered by right. it, and the others would be very threatened by it. You know, in prison, it's a very... Uh, you know, it's a very protective Christianity. Everything is protective. You have to protect yourself in, in every sense if you're an inmate in prison. And so, of course, your faith is going to be a, a protective faith, but you'll never grow out of that. And so, you know, so I was just being a prophetic challenger. And well, so, well, if you have to protect it, then maybe it's not that powerful. It's interesting that you say that because in the re recovery world, it's almost opposite. I, when I would go in for, with 12-step meetings, some of the guys would talk about how much easier it was to find drugs in prison than on mm. the street. So being able to stay sober was actually tougher in the prison. Yeah. Could be. Yeah, I yeah. don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't – anyways, the – Oh, shit. No, I lost my <laughs> Oh, I was going to make an observation, and, and hopefully uh, it's it's within the realm. But one of the things I've noticed uh, during our friendships is it somehow, and it's always word of mouth, people find you that have no interest in being connected to Christianity, but they want pastoral care. Yeah, absolutely. You attract those people yeah. better than anyone else I've ever witnessed. And and so how what what has that been like? Yeah, and I think that's a result of uh what Richard Rohr and oh. Thomas Keating taught me to to read the scriptures contemplate mm -hmm. not, not with contempt uh, <laughs> contempt in a contemplative stance. Oh, I hate having to do this every day. <laughs> and to practice contemplative prayer, which is a a, a real shift from the charismatic kind of prayer, which which is uh, what we would call uh, in most circles intercessory prayer, mm -hmm. which is you're trying to get God to move in the circumstances, whereas the contemplative stance is I'm going to accept what is, and I'm going to be in that moment and just uh, see what God is doing in that moment, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's a, res a good result or or not. Mm -hmm. I'm not even going to judge whether it's good or bad. Because uh, it's God, thing. regardless, it's God moving. Yeah, it's just it's now, and so. Um, so when you when you treat people that way, uh, it, it removes all the agendas, your hidden agendas. So so many Christians have a they can't help it, but because they're trained 
to convert others to their way of thinking, uh, to their faith. And you can't, and so as a result, you can't have an authentic, honest relationship with anyone because you always have this hidden agenda. Uh, what, what, uh, is it called, uh, I might mess this up because I, Jesus sandwich? Yeah, offer so, yeah, I heard somebody say yeah, that to yeah, me yeah, one so, time. Yeah, or, yeah. or I used to call it the Amway Jesus. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm gonna sell this this pyramid scam to you. And, so so explain that growing up with Amway Jesus and then shifting to this. Yeah, it just puts you in a very awkward, unnatural kind of situation, you know. And so, you know, so I, I ran the I did the whole thing in my teens. I'd go witness to people on the streets mm. and and uh, get rocks thrown at me and the funniest one though was uh, uh, was at my high school, and there was this uh, the hard rocker dude, you know, with the whole getup, uh, hair bands of the late eighties, right, you know, yeah, he looked yeah, like yeah. that, and he was sitting alone by himself, and so I sat down next to him and I started telling him about my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and gave him my spiel, my Amway pitch, right. if you will, for your, Jesus, your elevator pitch, and he was totally silent, and I and I said, well. Uh, you want me to leave? And he goes, uh, no, you stay here. I'll leave. <laughs> he walked away and it was awesome. <laughs> talking, going back to the contempt that yeah. we were talking about a few moments and ago. And really, that's what the culture is saying to evangelicals now. You just stay here on this little island that you've created, this little bubble of unreality. You stay there and we'll move on. Right. We'll move forward. Because you're irrelevant and you have nothing to say. Well, that was one of the beautiful things I encountered here at Desert Rain was when I first started hanging out with you and Greg and Jacob and everybody, I was waiting for the Amway pitch. I was always waiting for the Amway pitch. And it's been, what, seven, eight years now and you guys still haven't given me the fucking pitch. Yeah, you can't fake it. If you, You can't. So that's what we were trying to do in our... In our church world, we were trying to hide that we had this agenda. Prior to Desert Rain. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. You know, we try to be as natural as we can, you know. Act natural, like, act natural, act natural. Yeah, act natural. Just act natural. Uh, you don't need to do that, you know. And um, and so, you know, just be a human being. Uh, I think it was Eras- or, uh, Irenaeus who said, uh, the glory of God is fully realized in a human being being fully human. Mm. Something like that. I'm, I'm sure I butchered it. Yeah. But... Simply be yourself. Well, I think I think the other profound part of that is someone knows when you're being authentic. You know, you and I yeah. were talking about just minutes before we we started recording about the uh, people uh, putting up the uh, their social media life. Right? It's very right, curated, right. very altered, and uh, and even through there, you know when someone's being authentic and someone's curating their life right yeah. but then when you're sitting across for someone and having conversations that that multiplies by a thousand yeah of the you know the authenticity like this or you know it's it's uh there's an agenda like this right it's, right and um Pseudo. and that authenticity in my opinion is where god is able to come in between people. yeah exactly and that's what's attracted to me all the to all the teachers that i've had in my life is authenticity that, that's the common denominator of any spiritual teacher uh, that has ever spoken deeply into my soul. Mm-hmm. It starts with authenticity and that they've worked this crap out in themselves mm-hmm. and, they've, and they've failed forward and so forth and so on. So, well, some of them even, even failed backwards in my, yeah, in, in yeah. my, my personal uh, relationship with, with these different teachers and yeah. uh, spiritual guides and whatever else. So we've kind of gone down a tangent, but I think a useful one. Sort of bring it back. Um, maybe you could talk about the the months building up to you hearing about the living school, getting into this living school. I believe there's an application process, if I remember correctly, when I, yeah, I looked yeah. at it. And maybe we could we could talk about some of that of of your experience, sort of walking into that because I know it. it the actual school has, just as a friend and an observer of your life, has has been very impactful. Yeah, it was a very, it was a great experience, and, yeah, so and I continue to, to participate in it. Right, right, right. Yeah, it hasn't. Yeah, it hasn't. That ship hasn't sailed. Yeah, but, continuing conversations with people, and but maybe we can um, look at the you. 
Yeah, for me, it was that. just a simple, uh, some external circumstances in my life had shifted and there was uh, more time available. And I was discerning what I should be doing with that time as a, as a, a pastoral servant, you know, what should right. I, what can I do? And, and so I was kind of discerning a spiritual direction program of some sort. And I looked at probably a dozen of them and, and found the living school and I had already known about it, mm-hmm. but it just felt like that was one for me. And even though it's not specifically a spiritual direction school in the sense you get a, a stamp to wear <laughs> says you are a spiritual director now. <laughs> well, you do, you did you know. get a, a sash at the end yes, of uh, graduation. Put a sash on me. Yes. Was it, is it, am I calling that right? Yeah, was I it think a it was a sash okay. of some sort. Uh, yeah, and I love the way nice. that when they graduate you, they're like, you know, they make fun of you. Right. And uh, because, it's you know, you never graduate in a school of Christ, in right. a school or of contemplation. So. A living school. <laughs> exactly. Your graduation is when you die. Exactly. So, so, uh, so yeah, so I applied and and uh, got accepted into it and uh, and was it was a great two-year experience. Uh, one of the one of the greatest experiences was uh, when I was seventeen. I met with I, I you know on a previous podcast we discussed me leaving the Catholic Church. Right. And I sat down with uh, with with uh, my pastor uh, Dale Walker and just was telling him my experience and what where I was at you know with God and Jesus and all this and uh, and he pulled a book off his shelf. So I was about 17, and and it was a book, a very strange title called uh, Merton's Palace of Nowhere mm-hmm. by James Finley. And he said, I, he said, I, I don't, he, he basically said, I, I don't understand exactly what you're saying, but it reminds me of this book. Mm-hmm. So here, kid, here, take this book. Get out of here. Get out of my office now. <laughs> stop, stop harassing <laughs> me. <I> have, <laughs> you, you, don't, you don't have a job yet, right? No. All right. No, don't. Get out of my office, kid. Uh and and take that Kleenex with you, you know, kind of thing. Right. She blew your nose in my office. Um, and so, yeah, so I had this paper. I still have this paperback book. Mm. Well, it turns out the uh, one of the teachers at the living school is James Finley. Right. All these years later. Uh, in fact, it was almost to the month of exactly, I don't know, 35 years or whatever it was. Right. Um, and I was able to meet Jim uh, Finley face to face. And I showed him that paperback book. I did not ask him to sign it. Uh, and but you uh, handed it to the person behind you. <laughs> they asked. Well, I told them the story, and we just were just blown away. You know, it's amazing how books speak to you. And 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 Jim Finley is another example. When you when I hear him, and and it is more of his audio than anything else. He has written other books. Um, I'm profoundly in awe when he's when he speaks. And I know that my life is completely changed, but I can't repeat anything he said. Right. <laughs> I don't know what happened in those moments. And so and, and so it's an amazing thing. And so, yeah, he was one of the teachers, Cynthia Bourgeau, who I'd, listened, uh, I'd uh, read some of her books as well. Yeah, she's a really in great the writer. In the prayer yeah. movement. And, yeah, and so it's just a great combination. And then later, the end of the school, they added a teacher, uh, uh, Barbara Holmes, uh, to bring in black liberation theology and mm. and that ex- and that experience, which was also just a new chapter for me uh, to begin to look at. So and so those those being the teachers, and maybe we can talk about um, the themes or foundation around the living school. Uh, I think sure. Richard Rohr refers to it as. Uh, Alternative orthodoxy. Right. It's a Franciscan term. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Tapping into his Franciscan roots. And uh, yeah, so maybe we could just, I, I'll read off the uh, the theme for those that are not familiar with it. And, and then we, we can sort of delve from there. Uh, so the first one being scripture is validated by experience and experience as validated by tradition are good scales for one's spiritual worldview. Yeah, and we've talked about that, right? Right. What what the heck does that mean? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of it's it's kind of a a diced up version of what we mentioned last. I think it was last time. Uh, what some call the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Mm, yep. Yeah, right. Which is basically how do you discern truth? How do you 
how do you form your worldview, the way that you see life? Uh, and and he's and he's basically saying, your inner authority, which is the, given by the Holy Spirit, uh, scripture, uh, tradition, and then reason or science, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And you balance those out and look at them as lenses, if you will. Uh, look through them as lenses. Right. So, you know. And I've, I've also uh, thought of it in the sense of mirrors. Hmm, so look, way, yeah. you know, looking at those things and kind of seeing what reflects back on me personally, because I know, well, I don't know. One of the things I've seemed to, to bump into is that when I'm, when I'm really messed up about what's going on in the world, mm-hmm. There's something extremely uneasy about me going right. on at that same time. And so using this to using it as a mirror to kind of look back at, at myself. And then once the inner my inner spirit's a little calmer, then using it as lenses, like you're saying. Right. To encounter the world. It's kind of Meister Eckhart. Uh I guess this is a translation from his German, but it's the eye with which I seek God is the same eye with which God is seeking me. Mm. And so it's, it's a little bit of that. And it's also, uh, it's a monastic saying, I think it was in Latin, but uh, I don't see the world as it is. I see the world as I am, Yeah, you know, kind of that's, thing. And that's so, definitely been my experience. Yeah. And so to become aware of those things, Instead of just throwing out a few scripture verses and putting a band-aid over, you know, uh, a riot, <laughs> you know. Well, because the, the band-aid is eventually going to fall off. Yeah. It might not fall off today, but, you know, a month from now, 10 years from now, those yeah. things will bubble to the surface uh, as an individual, but also in society. Exactly. Uh, the next theme... Uh, If God is Trinity and Jesus is the face of God, then it is a benevolent universe. God is not someone to be afraid of, but is the ground of being and on our side. And that's uh, that theme is is based around foundation. Yeah. And so early on in our and and I think it was Henry Nowen, we'll talk about later, I guess, uh, introduced me to to icon meditation, how to, how to take a sacred icon and meditate on it. And when the one that I was attracted to in the, uh, about 20 years ago was the Rublev's uh, Trinity, right. which is the Old Testament Trinity. And, and Richard Rohr wrote a book on, on that. And, um, and just it was just a personal re- revelation. It's theological. I mean, it's traditional and theological, but it was very, it was, it was personally realized in my heart uh, in meditating on that icon, that God in God is community. God right. is not this separate individual on top of who's a isolated in the infinite sadness of the universe, mm. separate, far away. No, God is this dancing, singing circle, like the Orthodox, the perichoresis, like they say in the Orthodox theology, is this dancing, singing circle, participating in the life of the world and the world participating in the life. And by world, I mean by human life, not the world systems, uh, but the, you know, not, not the systems of, of oppression or anything like that. I mean, the day to day encounter. Yeah. I mean the earth, the living things of the earth and, and the human race uh, participating in this divine dance because one of the members of that Trinity uh, became human and brought him all humanity and, and all the cosmos, uh, you know, into the dance well, and I, and I would actually push back a little bit and say that the um, the worldly systems on a certain level are part of that dance because they were created by people. Yeah, I mean, eventually. I mean, the scriptures are the thesis of, of the of the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament is is the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the of the the kingdoms of this world, you know. Right, um, yeah. Slavery and a hundred percent. But if, if those things don't exist, then there's nothing for the kingdom of God yeah. to lean against. No, they're and reconciled and against. redeemed and yeah. Right. They're transformed. 
Ideally, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's the hope of yeah. the Judeo-Christian vision. Yeah, like even, you know, I, I think, well, you and I have, have done this in, in our friendship is like look around in a modern context and be like, okay, where, where can we go and push back right. and, and be engaged in these things we disagree yeah. with? How and, can I live justly? How can I walk humbly? How can I love mercy? Mm. You know. Yeah, those are beautiful, beautiful reminders. Uh, the next theme uh, that will go down, there's only one reality. Any distinctions between natural and supernatural, sacred and profane is a bogus one. Yeah, and so, so that theme was already well established in my heart because of the Celtic spirituality, mm-hmm, that which, which doesn't make a distinguish, uh, doesn't put a wall between secular and sacred nat or physical and spiritual and either does the uh either do the jewish scriptures there's no there's no separation that's a greek idea later uh but it's not a jewish idea and uh and so that that's such a, that's just a freeing thing you know uh, i must think only sacred thoughts i must <laughs> drink milk only from a sacred cow i must listen to only christian music you know that kind of thing right um it's it's a it's kind of a sad way to live when you have these separations, and and it, and it become and it can become dangerous and destructive. These people are demonized and are evil uh, because they believe these things, uh, you know. And we see that in our culture right now, playing out. Well, and I think also it's dangerous because it it'll paint that individual into a corner, yeah, and it is just so so isolating at some point, right? Because every at some point. We're all fallible, right? So at some point, you're going to continue to be disappointed by these things yeah. that are, in your mind, it should be perfect and pure and wh- yeah. whatever other adjectives you want to put on there. And so you'll just keep getting disappointed, keep, keep getting disappointed, and you're just going to end up by yourself in a room, Yeah, which maybe will end up liberating you if you can sit in silence and, and come to term with these things, but probably, uh, probably not, right? Right. And everybody, any or anybody, I would suspect anybody that's on a spiritual journey um, has to wrestle with their own moralisms mm-hmm. at some point, and uh, their inner religious Pharisee, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, the religious ego that wants to uh, to call this evil and call that good, and you know, and 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 do all those kinds of things, and you've got to be able to. Trans, uh, transcend that and it's difficult because you know when you read the history of Christian mysticism if, if you you know have about 10 lifetimes just to read that alone there's so much in the material that's that's just more petty moralisms is all it is yeah. and you have to really get through that and sentimentalism and all that kind of stuff you know and, and, I, and uh, I would venture to guess no one ever really transcends it because your hypocrisy is going to keep coming up at each turn. Right, yeah. So, no, you don't arrive at some moral place. You arrive again, and, and Richard Rohr really uh, hammered this away from me, is uh, you embrace your unworthiness. Mm. You know, and he, and he, he celebrates AA that way. Uh, you know, and he, and he criticizes the church. The, uh, the church will say, well, you can't come to the Lord's table. You can't come to the altar unless you're worthy. We've turned it into a, a, a belonging game. Uh, whereas AA says, no, it's your unworthiness that qualifies you right. to come to the table. Yeah, no one, And that's no exactly one, what Jesus does. No one in third grade says, man, I hope I grow up to be an alcoholic yeah. so I can go to an <laughs> AA meeting. Literally no one no. has said that. <laughs> and so... And so that should be the bar. It's my unworthiness, and and my and, and like Rich Mullins said, uh, uh, the musician, um, you're you're uh, sure you're, there's your vices, uh, but your uh, but but your uh, virtues can be just as dangerous to yourself and others as your vices are. Mm. And so so it's that it's that moralistic game of, mm-hmm. and so yeah, the spirit kind of. Uh, you see it on the day of Pentecost. He falls on all nations. Mm. It's, it's about uh, it's about Jew and Gentile becoming one, the human race, uh, uh, male and female, uh, you know, the whole diversity right. of, of things. And so of speaking life. many different languages, you see that on Acts chapter 2. And, 
And so you, so you see that's, that's what the spirit is all about, you know. Well, and the problem with the unworthiness, embracing your unworthiness is it's, that's, uh, in Western culture, it's so frowned upon. Right, yeah. To You're not going to get likes on Facebook for that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so the fourth, uh, the fourth thing we have is everything belongs and no one needs to be scapegoated or excluded. It's kind of a continuation yeah, kind of what of we were same, just talking about. the same theme. Evil and illusion only need to be named and exposed truthfully, and they die in the exposure to the light. Yeah, so that's, that's a, you know, light is always more powerful than darkness. Um, for me, the language that, that it liberated me personally from my own religious Pharisee, uh, and you're never fully liberated. You have to keep doing the work. But th- these right. were big shelves, if you will, that, that right. I, I the next step up. Yeah, where I noticed it, you know. And it was, um, this was probably in my mid-30s. I would say uh, the first half of my life, I focused completely on my original sin and my fallenness. But uh, never, never again for the rest of my life, I'm going to focus on the original blessing that this, God has restored in me. This was your thought process early in life? In, in my mid-30s, okay. I came to that. And, and so that's, so then it was about embracing uh, the person that I was trying to kill <laughs> inside mm. of me. And, and, and I had a profound experience. Um, I feel safe, so I'll just say this. Uh, it was a personal experience, and I had, I was, I had just gotten out of the hospital from uh, going septic, and I almost died. I was in ICU for several days, and all my organs had shut down, and they did surgeries, and uh, and somehow I made it back home and and to recover. And the first day home, uh, the depression really started setting in what had happened and right. and, I, and they had cut a hole in my leg and installed a wound vac Oof. for three months. So I'm sitting there with this machinery, keeping a wound open in my leg and, uh, basically to allow it to drain, right? Right. Yeah. Mm. To heal from the inside out. Oof. And so it was painful. And, and so, so my emotions were catching up with what had happened physically and it was just a heavy load and, and the bills, uh, you know, half a million dollars, something yeah. like that, you know, um, and so I remember it was like a Sunday afternoon and, and I was kind of in and out of sleep and the depression was setting in. I was lying in bed and just like in the hospital when you see shadows coming in and out of your doorway because they're always coming and going, uh, nurses and visitors and whatnot. Right. And uh, so I saw kind of a shadow come into the room and, and this is, you know, and in a vision all of a sudden. Uh, it was it was uh, Saint Francis of Assisi. Yeah. I recognize him because I've seen the paintings. Uh, <laughs> and and he took my hands and he said, uh, he said, son, the, the he said, uh, don't fight your wounds and don't make them your enemy because they're not your enemy. Befriend your wounds yeah. and they'll become one with the one sacred wound of Christ. And I saw the stigma on his hands and I and I woke up kind of crying and the tears were going into my ears and. I prayed the prayer of St. Francis. And so that's kind of what, what Richard Rohr and, and those kinds of teachings really give permission to do is befriend your wounds, mm. befriend your woundedness, stop fighting it and rejecting it or pretending that they don't exist. Um, and, and they become transformed. They, yeah. they become changed and they become healing wounds. And uh, one, of the, one of the things Richard Rohr often says is, or he'll ask the question, what, what are you doing with your pain? Mm. Um, are you transmitting it or are you, or is it being transformed? Well, and one of the beautiful things about healing your wound is then you get to turn around and, and, uh, offer a hand to the next person. Yeah. And be present to them. Yeah. That has a similar wound that they're trying to heal. Yeah, You know I mean? Going back to that, that idea of the 12 step thing, you know, you, you don't enter a 12 step thing just to heal your alcoholism. Well, some people do, but the bigger picture is to then stick around to help whoever the next person is that comes in the door and says, Hey, I don't, I've run out of ideas. Become a healing community. Right. Um, and one thing I would, I just want to briefly touch on in this fourth theme is, uh, it talks about, you know, needing to expose these things to light. Um, 
and and to be I have exposed things to light in quotation marks uh, in a just out of self-righteousness, not not in a healing. So I want to point out someone else. Oh, this person is evil and this person, you know, and and I think it's even more uh, sort of tapping back to the social media stuff that we're talking about earlier is everybody wants to dunk on the other person for being evil. It's like, well, that's not really exposing, you know, exposing light to something. That's sort of propagating that. See, public figures, they're not seen, they're they're public figures, so they're not seen as private human beings with real feelings. So they're very easy to, to pour out your own personal pain on these scapegoats, if you will, because they don't really, the public persona doesn't really exist. And so, and, and, and we're also addicted to our own self-righteousness. Yeah. Oh yeah. So most definitely. That's why like, I wanted to bring it up because, you know, self-righteousness runs deep in all of us. For yeah. Sure. So I can make a, a political statement on social media and feel very smug and good about myself. And that's really what I wanted. And then, and then those in my own echo chamber can give can me, high five yeah, you. can high five me and you didn't change anything. Yeah. And, and I think too, uh, I mean, you pointed out the public figures, but also, you know, I also see this happening amongst family and friends. Right. Yeah. It can, get, social media it can get even too. more painful yeah. and violent even. Yeah. So uh, the next theme uh, we have is the separate, The separate self is the problem, whereas most religion and most people make the shadow self the problem. This leads to denial, pretending, and projecting instead of real transformation into the divine. And the theme there is just transformation. Yeah. It's, again, learning to be kind to yourself. Uh, Like St. Paul said, it's, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance or transformation or change. And so... It's, it's not this, uh, and again, if, uh, if you're on any kind of spiritual journey and you read any kinds of things, particularly from the medieval period, uh, you know, like the monk's ladder, you know, one false step and you fall off into hell and, uh, you know, just. <laughs> Is that a real thing? Yeah, 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 for Amazing. sure. Uh, one bad thought, you know, and mm. so, so, so. Your ego is not this enemy. That's the goal is not to destroy your ego. Right. The ego is a part of your psyche, and it and it kind of protected you yeah, when yeah. you were a child. And well, even as adults, yeah, yeah, and even yeah, as an it keeps adult, you, it keeps you alive. And it's kind of a public persona, if you will. And uh, but just it knowing its place, and and you realizing that your ego, your your external self, is not your real you. It's an extension of you, but it's not, it's passing. So you might be in the role of a mother or a father. You might be in the role of an employer or an employee, uh, but that's not who you are ultimately and, at the end of the day. Because those things will pass. They're passing, yeah. yeah. And so, so who are you eternally? And so that's, you know, and a good place to start is I'm a child of God. I'm a, I'm an, I'm a, a beloved of God and begin there. Mm-hmm. And, and I think... You know, to coupled with the kindness, at least that's been important in my spiritual path has been honesty. Yeah, brutal honesty. Yeah, because I'll lie to myself way better than anyone else will lie to me. Yeah. And once I start lying to myself, then those lies resonate out to those around me. You know, but if I can be kind and be honest with myself, I think that's where you tap into that authenticity we were talking yeah, about earlier. Yeah, it's, it's a tough dance mm-hmm. to learn, you know. It's not a... It's not no, it doesn't a, uh, happen overnight. It's not a waltz. <laughs> uh, what are, are there dances where the, you step on squares on the floor? Or something? Uh, uh, Saturday you know, very, Night Fever or whatever. Well, there's dances where, where it's pre, pre-programmed, <laughs> if you will. And then there's dances that are soul dances, like, uh, a, okay, like yeah. a salsa, you know? And, yeah. uh, you know, where you, you, you go by the soul. And, and so it's a, you know, so brutal. So you live between this brutal honesty and this intense compassion. At the same time, and so, and that's another theme of, of Richard Rohr's work is 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 uh, managing the paradox of things and standing in the middle of these paradoxes to be transformed, which is the cross. Right. Uh, basically, it's death and life right in the middle, uh, mercy and judgment right in the middle. You know, and so it's that it's that liminal space. So it's a beautiful, beautiful place to be when you can, even if it's just for a moment, when you're in that. 
that place. Yeah. Uh, the path. Of, so this is the next theme. The path of descent is the path of transformation. Darkness, failure, relapse, death, and woundedness are our primary teachers, rather than ideas or doctrines. Yeah. So again, it's it's that brutal authenticity of uh, making friends with your failures and your wounds, and uh, and letting them be transformed. Well, and I also think it goes back to the importance of an individual's experiences. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and uh, Brene Brown has done mm-hmm. a lot of work on this. Yeah, she, so, you know, just start with the two TED Talks she did mm-hmm. on uh, on uh, being vulnerable, the power of vulnerability. Um, it's it's powerful stuff, you know. And so, so I, I personally don't trust anyone that's not vulnerable. Well, uh, but I but I have to be. I have to model that vulnerability myself, right. and uh, and so it's you know it's it's again it's a tough, tricky dance. It's it's a paradox in community as well because we can't trust each other. We can't have community unless we trust each other. Right. But we can't trust each other unless we're vulnerable with each other. Mm-hmm. But we can't be vulnerable with each other unless we trust each other. And so someone's got to jump out into that lake naked first and. Right. Uh, and be vulnerable, and that's what and that's what we're saying is that it's it's not God in in God's all powerfulness that really makes the day. It's God in God's vulnerability, as found in the person of Jesus Christ, of uh, a, a, a vulnerable God. And and uh, anyone that thinks they can avoid this vulnerability. Uh, yeah. it's, it's coming for you. Yeah, it's, it is. <laughs> You're going to be humbled it, at some it's point. It's the nature of reality. <laughs> through you know, through my teenage years and into my twenties, uh, I I was the furthest thing from vulnerability. But eventually, that humbling event is going to come. Yeah. and take you out at your legs, and you you'll have no choice. Well, you'll still have a choice, but. The pain is going to be such that the vulnerability is going to re- relieve that in such a profound and meaningful yeah. way that 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 seems to be the only choice. Yeah, and it's. Uh, I have a thesis. I don't know how true it is, but I, I wonder if most people don't become who they truly are till maybe the last couple of days of their lives, mm. because all of those external props and scaffoldings have fallen away, and then you see the real them at last uh, well or but you, not always in hospice i've seen different a lot of different things uh, but well you can go to an a meeting and someone that's coming in hung over off of a 40-day a binge uh they're they're pretty close to their their most humbled self if you yeah. will uh, but that can be fleeting as well yeah you can fall you back can roll back you can, into you know, your uh, your old ways, so to speak. Um, and that's not just for alcoholics. That's yeah. anybody, you know, the the guy who, the lawyer that's out there doing 120 hours a week that yeah. gets burned out and, you know, six months later, he's right back at it again, trying to do the same thing. Well, the world's culture celebrates strength and power. They don't, stre- you know, they don't celebrate the weak, mm-hmm. the vulnerable, uh, <laughs> you know. So, so we everything in our upbringing has been to become successful, which usually means some sort of monetary, monetary, you know, outcome or to be physically strong or to be, to have some sort of gifting that dazzles people. And when, and we've done this religiously as well. And, and you see the opposite in the example of Jesus of Nazareth and, and the reality, again, and reality is against all of that. Uh, You could, you know, you could be able to pull a, a huge boat with your teeth and you're swimming and pulling this boat. But at some point you're not going to have the strength to hold even your urine at right. some point. And so that's where it's heading. And it might be novel shortly, but people are going to get tired of it. Like, Oh yeah, the guy pulling the yeah, boat with his deal. teeth, <laughs> you know, so that even the fame will wear off or what, you yeah. know, whatever it might, whatever has gotten you there in the first place. Yeah. So it doesn't matter how smart you are or how, and that's why I've, I've made it a, you know, it's not, I don't believe it's morbid, but I've, from my young teenage years, I would uh, visit the graveyard uh, often, mm-hmm. and I still do, and I just walk among the the gravestones, and, and, you, and you see doctors, 
uh, you see people that were successful. It'll say on their tombstone. Right. They invented this. Yeah. Well, and even the size of the tombstone. Yeah, yeah. There'll be some big to, ones. And, right. Points to how, and, how important they were. And then I'll see many stones of children that lived maybe a few days. Mm-hmm. And, and it just gives me that perspective of... Yeah. Or the veteran that was yeah. 19 years old. And he never came home. Right. Well, yeah, I yeah. guess he wouldn't be a veteran at that point. But a soldier, right? Yeah, yeah. That never made it home. Um, yeah, it's that's the the cemetery is is sort of the where we're all headed, and it's all yeah. the same same playing field. Exactly. Uh, and and so the last theme that uh, sort of this living school was built on reality is paradoxical and complementary. How do you pronounce? I, I don't know. know. <laughs> complementary. Yeah. Okay, complementary. I make up words from time to time. <laughs> Uh, David Morrison knows. What was the one? Crucification. Crucification, yes. <laughs> uh, non-dual thinking is the highest level of consciousness. Divine union, not private perfection, is the goal of all religion. Yeah, and again, it's it's uh, that's a fancy way of saying uh, all or nothing thinking will kill you. <laughs> black and white. Right? Black and white, uh, or black or white thinking uh and i you know and when i was working a lot of this stuff out uh probably in the early 2000s i would have people that were also struggling with it and struggling with apparently struggling with me struggling with it uh Mm. and they would come up to me and make statements where well i see the world in black and white (laughs) and and i would and they do they do if they say that they are in that moment they for sure yeah and one of them i was close you know i was friendly enough with them to say really uh uh, you don't see blue have you heard of the color blue red white green green's a great color there are lots of colors magenta uh you know and so you know and 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 so it's again it comes back to experience uh it's easy for a lot of people to 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 think they have all the answers, you know. If, right. if poor people would just get a job, well, that's you know, they you know that's what we're told. Like that. Well, and we're told early on that we need to find these answers, right? Or we're going to be get left behind. Exactly, and so 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 non dual thinking is just another way of it's a fancier way of saying uh, it's not all or nothing thinking; it's both and mm-hmm. thinking, and uh, and so and that's if you're gonna involve yourself in any kind of faith that's going to transcend just institutional religion mm-hmm. where you just attend services, attend mass, uh, and just participate at that very uh, literal level only. But if you're going to go any deeper than that, then you're going to, or if you're going to even show up into your own life. Right. That's what I was going to yeah. say. If you, if you want to find any kind of internal peace. Yeah. You've, you've got you've to got deal to with paradox. With, yeah. You've got to wrestle with the, the both yeah. end. My father was a good man and was also not so good. Did mm-hmm. some not good things. My grandma was a racist, but she was also a good person. She made, she made awesome in cookies. In some ways, made awesome. We just, <laughs> just, yeah, just keep making the cookies, grandma. <laughs> Don't give me your opinion of anything. Uh, you know, and, and, and you've got to be able to, to hold those, those seemingly opposites together, you know. And, yeah, because we definitely need, well, and... I don't think, I mean, this is my opinion, but I also, you know, I think it's, it's well-founded by many of the uh, spiritual leaders, but each person is here for a divine reason, right? Yeah. And so if we try to skate, well, we talked about it earlier with the scapegoating. If we try to scapegoat anyone out because of one of their mistakes, um, not only is it hurting that individual, but it's hurting the rest of the community because that person does have something to offer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's, yeah, there's something there for everybody. And something that I've learned, uh, a couple of nights ago, I couldn't sleep. And and usually when you can't sleep, it's usually about three in the morning, you know. Mm-hmm. And usually as my daughter says, I hope she doesn't say this by experience, but, you know, uh, nothing good ever happens after <laughs> three o'clock in the morning. And, uh, and and I was just lying there in my thoughts and and I and I just started rolling over the, the answer, the, the exchange in Ezekiel where... The, the spirit speaks to the prophet and says, uh, shows him a valley of dry bones and says, can these dry bones live again? And the prophet says, uh, 
And for some reason at three o'clock in the morning, it was King James English that was coming out of my thoughts. Uh, <laughs> it happens. Thou alone knowest, Lord. Thou alone knowest. And, and that just kept going over and over. And so that's a, so that's a good answer to have uh, for your life. You alone know, Lord, rather than, oh, well, this, uh, you know, Genesis chapter for whatever <laughs> says this. So, yeah, Woo! you know. And then I began to think of the Negro spiritual, you know, the uh, dim bones. And, I, and I, so I started going through that in my head. You know, the toe bone is connected to the foot bone. The foot bone is connected to the ankle bone. And then it goes all, you know, and yeah, I yeah, started yeah. going through that because so it was 3 so o'clock in the morning. I was trying to fall asleep. Yeah, nothing else to do. And, uh, and I realized, why would they write that song? Why would they sing that song? Uh, and these were, you know, these, these were oppressed slaves. Why would they sing such a song? Why? Because how can a dry, uh, a, a valley of dry bones come to live again? It's one bone at a time, mm-hmm. one century at a time, maybe. Yeah. So you alone know, Lord. It's such a slow process, but I trust that process. And so that's kind of, and then I fell asleep. Well, and, the, and I think that, you know, propels to Jesus in the garden. Yeah. When he's like, I don't want to go through this, but... Your will be done. Yeah, done. exactly. And that's not King James translation. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's like, I don't, I've been there. I don't want to be here, but your your will be done, yeah. God, because only you know. Only you know where this is going. So Exactly. Man, Mr. David Morrison. <laughs> Mr. Dorian Mason. We have had another, Brass Knuckles Mason. Another, another Brass Knuckles Mason. We had another classic recorded here. We need to fill a couple more minutes, so I just I want you to uh, fill us in on your thoughts about uh, they're making a uh, Mel Gibson is making a sequel to the Passion of Christ. How do you feel about that? I have no opinion of that. I, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> we're gonna cut. Is that he out. really doing that? No, I don't. Oh, I, okay. I heard I heard it, but I don't. Where I heard it, I think it was a joke. Oh, okay. <laughs> they're like, yeah, you would just go up to Doubting Thomas and poke the holes. And- yeah, there's not a whole lot there, I guess. <laughs> so I love you, brother. Love you, too. Thank you all for listening. Yeah, thank you, everyone, for Desert Rain. This is signing out from Desert Rain Community Radio. Uh, David Morrison, Dorian Mason, uh, theruin.com, monkdrums.com, stillconsulting.com, all the dot-coms. Check them out. <laughs> we love you all. Good night. <laughs>